This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, February 26, 2009. I'm Caleb Brown. Paul Krugman yearns for the days of the 50s and 60s when it comes to income equality. He also pays tribute to the days where fewer people changed employers through their careers. But does income inequality itself mean anything? And would a return to loyalty to firm bring us back to the days of the organization man? Brink Lindsay, Vice President for Research at the Cato Institute and author of the new Cato paper, Nostalgianomics, comments. Krugman, along with a lot of people on the left, said, you know, wring their hands a lot about income inequality. What, is that, what does that mean, and uh, why does he think it's so important uh, to uh, try to mitigate it? Well, first, what does income inequality mean? That's a complicated question. Uh, there's complicated questions about what do you mean by income and what do you mean by inequality? On the income side, do you mean pre-tax income, post-tax income? Do you mean with transfers from the government or not? Uh, <clears throat> with uh, Do you mean individual wages? Do you mean household income, which includes not only income from the job, but income from other sources and, and your spouse's income as well? On the inequality side, uh, there's all kinds of different ways to measure inequality. There's something called the Gini coefficient, which is a, a overall aggregate measure of deviation from total equality of income. Then there's ratios. The the people at the the incomes at the 90th percentile versus incomes at the 10th percentile are 90, 50. Uh, all kinds of different ways of measuring. But generally speaking, uh, I think the uh, the people who are concerned about inequality are right insofar as there something has been going on. Uh, that is, uh, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, uh, incomes were converging. That is, all incomes were growing during that period and growing pretty healthily, uh, but incomes at the bottom and the middle were growing faster than incomes at the top, uh, so that uh, the whole wage structure and income structure was becoming compressed over time. Uh, egalitarians like that. <clears throat> Since the 1970s, however, uh, incomes have been diverging. Income growth in the middle uh, and bottom has slowed down. Uh, income growth at the top uh, has spiked up considerably. And so we see a wider income distribution than we used to. Why does that matter? I would say, uh, in the first instance, it doesn't matter very much at all. What matters most is absolute income. Are people better off today than they were before? Uh, and without a doubt, despite a lot of uh, sort of uh, statistical squid ink uh, about uh, wage stagnation and the like. There's just no doubt in the world uh, that living standards today are dramatically higher than they were a generation ago. Um, still, I would say that there's something uh, of concern about income inequality. If there are large groups of people uh, that are, even if they're doing better off, or still feel that they are falling behind people at the top, then they feel discontent. We, we, we judge our relative well-being as well as our absolute well-being. That can produce political pressures for bad policies. So I think it's something to, to be concerned about. Uh, but to me, it's not the most important thing by any stretch. Related to that, what about the concentration of wealth that how has that changed over the last uh, 40, 50 yeah. years? So, the, of course, another, in addition to income inequality, which is measuring these streams of, uh, of income, there's also wealth inequality, measuring stocks of household wealth. Uh, there has been some increase in wealth inequality since the 1970s, uh, but, uh, but actually there's been a dramatic decrease in wealth inequality from the 30s through the 70s. Uh, and so these days, 
we're still lower than uh, than we were back, I think, in the 50s or 60s, uh, and and dramatically less unequal than we were uh, back in the 1930s. So wealth, in, at least as judged in terms of the, percent, the percentage of total wealth owned by the wealthiest 1% of Americans. So on the wealth inequality front, the egalitarian critics don't have much of a case. Uh, but on income inequality, there, there, there really has been a, a change in trends. Why does Paul Krugman yearn for the days of the 50s and 60s in terms of economic institutions and uh, these concentrated bands of, uh, of incomes? Well, uh, just to understand why, you have to understand uh, his contribution uh, or the contribution of others that he is highlighting, because uh, this isn't really an area where he's been working in, as an economist. It's an area where he's been working in as a columnist and a public intellectual. Uh, but uh, big question, why is this happening? Why are income trends diverging? Uh, and the leading explanation from economists is uh, changes in the structure of the economy. Uh, that is, uh, in particular, technological progress, the information technology revolution uh, has uh, increased demand for high-skilled knowledge workers relative to demand for low-skilled workers, and this increased relative demand has uh, boosted wages at the top relative to wages in the middle and the bottom. I think there's just no doubt that that's been going on, and that's part of the puzzle. Uh, Krugman does, uh, I think, uh, uh, a service by saying that's not the whole story, uh, and uh, we ought to look at other explanations. In particular, we ought to look at changes in public policy and at changes in cultural values. It is definitely true that we've had colossal changes in, uh, in economic policies uh, over the past generation relative to what was uh, prevailing in the early post-war decades. We've also had titanic shifts in cultural values and social mores uh, over this period. So it makes sense to look at those. Uh, uh, he looks at them in a very selective way. I uh, looked at them in a, in a more comprehensive way. Okay, given the uh, downsides of uh, prevailing social attitudes of the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Can't we get back to all the, what he says is the upside without having the organization man, without having uh, these prevailing attitudes about women in the workforce? Uh, can, we, can we avoid the, the downside yeah. and yeah, grab so, the upside? So what he does is, uh, is he, I think he has a clear ideological incentive to portray the 50s and 60s as this enlightened period of, of governance. Uh, liberals were in charge. It was a time uh, of, uh, of very activist government, lots of intervening in markets, and yet the economic numbers were stellar. Growth was fantastic. Income growth in particular was great. And these egalitarian values of income compression and, uh, were, were being fulfilled as well. So to him, uh, it looks like a wonderful model for liberals of today. Look back at what liberals did back in the 50s and 60s, and we can do that again. Uh, but to, to reach that kind of, you know, ideologically satisfying for him uh, conclusion, I think he has to be very selective about what was actually going on back in the 50s and 60s. He has to cherry pick policies he likes. He likes uh, strong unionization. Uh, he likes a high minimum wage. He likes very progressive income taxes. Uh, but he fails to notice that those uh, particular policies are part of a much larger constellation of policies uh, that I, I outline in the book, uh, in the paper. Uh, <clears throat> 
whose uh, common denominator is suppression of competition. All kinds of cartelization of markets, uh, price and entry controls in one industry after another, suppression of retail competition, uh, suppression of labor markets through uh, very restrictive immigration policies, um, restrictive of labor markets uh, through uh, social mores, rampant sexism that kept women out of most kinds of jobs. Uh, also, uh, uh, you know, the racist attitudes of the day that sustained the immigration laws of that time. Uh, so there's, uh, I think it's unfair, it's nostalgia rather than history to look back at this time as a golden age. Uh, it is true uh, that these policies, some of which Krugman likes, many of which he doesn't, added up to, uh, to uh, restraining incomes at the top and boosting incomes in the middle. Um, and it's true that those social mores of racism and sexism and kind of organization man conformism helped to restrain incomes at the top by restraining competition for top talent uh, and also uh, boosting up uh, incomes uh, in the middle and bottom, in particular by uh, keeping women and foreigners out of the workforce. Um, but uh, that's a much more complicated uh, uh, picture than the one, uh, than the kind of stick figure uh ideological morality play that Krugman wants to portray. Can we go back and just cherry pick the good stuff uh, on the social mores front? I, I think it's, that's very, very hard to do. I would uh, argue, as uh, I did in this paper and, and then at greater length in my book, The Age of Abundance, that uh, economic growth, economic development brings with it uh, uh, social changes. Uh, not inevitably, uh, but, but still in a in a, in a fairly regular fashion. We see it not only in the United States, but in countries around the world. As they get richer, uh, as material uh, sufficiency and security become taken for granted, uh, we, we see again and again a move away from more traditional authoritarian moralities towards more individualistic moralities because people, uh, they, uh, there's, there's just more choice. There's more wealth. There's more things to do. There's more different kinds of jobs to have, more different places to live. You can move all around the country. You can travel all around the world. Uh, you're exposed to all this kind of information because you're richer. Uh, and therefore, the more choices there are, the more it doesn't seem to make sense that you should have some one-size-fits-all kind of uh, morality. Uh, and so traditional kinds of attitudes about racial homogeneity, about the sexual division of labor, about sort of dutiful loyalty to your organization, all of those just tend to get degraded uh, by this move towards individualism. We saw that in the U.S. in spectacular fashion during the kind of craziness of the 60s and 70s. Even after that craziness died down, though, uh, the, the basic shift towards individualism, which I think is a profoundly good one, stuck, and we see that in other countries around the world. So I think it's very difficult to kind of cherry pick that the good authoritarian aspects of culture that you like uh, while uh, uh, weaning out the ones you don't. Well, yeah, and no, no serious person would suggest that we should go back to a time of racism and, and, and sexism, <laughs> but he does seem to, in some ways, celebrate that sort of uh, blind loyalty to firm. Yeah, so, um, you know, so how, let's look at particular how that worked. Uh, so there's no doubt that, uh, that in the early post-war decades, there was just much more of a sense of loyalty to your organization, that in that kind of environment, it was 
typical for people to spend their whole lives working at one company, get their gold watch at the end of the 50 years. Uh, it was bad form uh, in this kind of cultural setting to uh, put yourself out of the market and, uh, and uh, look for the highest bidder. Um, I think we were moving away from a traditional agricultural economy to an office-based economy where people were learning how to live and work in large organizations. And, and during that kind of transitional period, it sort of made sense for people to have this heightened sense of organizational loyalty that as we started taking living in this new kind of way for granted, we, we moved away from. Uh, but the exact same uh, cultural trends that progressives like Krugman uh, celebrate uh, in terms of the move towards individualism, in terms of free cultural expression, in terms of, of breaking away from, uh, from uh, racism and sexism, uh, it's all bound up together. Uh, so, uh, so there's no way that you can take these cultural forces, which liberated people from, uh, from lockstep social roles and race and sex uh, and, and liberated them to, uh, to be much freer in terms of cultural expression and then somehow or another still have the man in the gray flannel suit. It's just, uh, it's just not going to work. Brink Lindsay is Vice President for Research at the Cato Institute and author of the new Cato paper, Nostalgianomics. You can read it at our website, cato.org.